several people asked to record the meeting. And so now, of course, they've missed the most important opening remarks. <laughs> so um, as I said, I don't intend this to be a lecture. The first thing I need to know is what do you all want to talk about? And so throw out some ideas. To know how to answer the phone. That's a great one. <laughs> So there's just how to use it as a phone. And then there's also how to put callers on the air, um, both of which are really easy. Um, so the, the phone in the on-air studio is a network device. It's a digital phone. It's not actually a landline. Um, and so it behaves a little differently and the sound quality is a little different. And in particular, as many of you will know, transferring calls from the main office into the studio is not as trivial as it should be. That because we have analog landlines in the main office and this digital computer phone in the studio. But if you're in the office when the staff isn't there and the phone is ringing, well, the first of all is you'll hear it ringing in the main office, but it'll be flashing on your desk. It doesn't actually ring in Studio A. Uh, then you can uh, just pick up the handset and there are two columns of black buttons to the left of the screen on that digital phone. At the bottom of one of those columns, one of the columns is in a graphic box, right? There's a white line that surrounds that column of buttons and that has a little icon of a handset at the bottom of that column. That's the button that you push to use it as a regular phone. So if the phone's ringing, most of the time it's going to be line one, but you'll see on the screen whether it's line one or line three. Those are the only two that'll ever ring in there. Um, and you push the black button in the column with the ha little handset icon at the bottom, corresponding to which line is, is ringing, one or three, and then you're off and running and it's a phone. If you now want to put that caller on the air, you say, okay, cool. You're ready to go on the radio? Great. The next time I talk to you, you're going to be on the radio. And you push the black button in the other column, which is the put it on the air button. So I think it's to the right. Yeah, I think the, the landline um, column is on the outside to the left. And the put it on the air button is just to the right of that. Is there a five-second delay or anything? There is not. Um, and, and this is the button. Matt, yeah. Matt, can you hear me? Go ahead. Um, to answer the phone, you want the button on the right. Oh, to okay. put the caller on the air, it's the button on the left, the ones that have numbers on them. Okay, I got that. Okay. Thank you. Um, so John says that the, the on-air buttons will actually have numbers on them that correspond to what line uh, you're using on the on the phone. And again, it's always going to be line one or line three, I'm pretty sure. Um, so in order to put somebody on the air, and I've got more to say about that in terms of uh, content, but just yeah. from the technology. Should you do it? Yes, that's another <laughs> question. Um, there's lots of things we can do. Um, but uh, just from a sheer uh, logistics and technology perspective, you got the person on the regular landline, 
and you're chatting and you're saying, okay, great, you're going to be on the radio today. You know what you're going to say? Here's what I'm going to ask you. Everybody's ready to go? Great. Then you push the on-air button, hang up the handset because that is no longer functional. Now you're on the air and you're going to hear that person in your headphones and talk to that person on the mic. There's a channel on the board on your right hand, roughly, which says phone one. And you got to turn that channel on and pot it up just like any other source. And now your caller will be on the air. Um, Pablo, did that work for you the other day? Yes, it did. Excellent. So, proof of concept. Um, and so, again, you, you push the, the landline button to answer the phone or to call out for that matter. You know, if, if you've got a number that you're dialing out, you pick it up, push that button, activates the line, dial the number of the person you want to contact. Now you're talking to them as a regular phone. And then uh, once you've done the prep and you let the person know that the next thing they say is going to be for broadcast. So is there a pot that corresponds? Yes. Yep. There's a phone pot. Again, it's, so most of your action is to the left, right? Your microphones and CD yes. players and all of that's on the left. The phone channel is on your right hand, roughly. Um, it's not all the way to the right, but it's significantly to the right of most of the buttons you use on a regular basis. So there's a phone pot. Yeah, John. Matt, I have a video that I took um, that I can share with anybody who wants it that shows you how to put the phone on the air. And that was absolutely going to be um, part of this package that we put together. I wanted to get it done for today. It didn't happen for today. I already have a video that I made of how to record your show on a USB. That's a little 45 seconds on how to put your thumb drive into the USB recorder. It's super easy. Um, you just have to know where the things are. Um, yeah, probably. I found the hardest part about the USB drive is uh, remembering to turn it on. Uh, Remember to turn it off. I don't remember if you take it with you when you leave the studio. But yes, all of those are true. Um, so yeah, we'll make little videos on how to use the phone, how to USB, uh, how to cue a record is another one that I can do with like a little 30 second video. Um, it's, it's uh, there's a technique to it, but I can demonstrate it quickly. It's sort of easy to show and it'll take you a little longer to get the hang of it. Um, it's not the most straightforward thing in the world, especially if you're not used to playing with records, um, but it is easy. It just takes practice. Um, Same with the CD as well. So yeah, what do you mean by that? Well, the CD player, I, I've not used it, although I'm, so I'm, I'm not sure when you hit play, is it going to immediately start up when you hit play on the board? Is that controlling it? Never had to do it before. So both of those things are true. You can use yeah. the controls on the faceplate and the on button on the board with the slider is a remote start. So what you need to do in that case, mm -hmm. um, there are other people using it far more than I do. Correct me if I say something wrong. But uh, you want to put the CD player in pause mode and then get it to the track that you want to play. And once that's queued up, and you do that on the faceplate of the CD player, um, and again, we can make a video about this as well. We'll make a little package to review. But once you queue, you put the CD player in pause mode, get it to track seven or whatever you're trying to play, 
then it's ready to go. When you click on the board, it'll start rolling. Yeah, and um, I haven't looked at it recently, but there uh, is also a DJ handbook in digital form on the desktop of the DJ computer. computer um, so uh, I believe that's in your recorded folder, but I will uh, update all of that and make these videos and put those in that folder as well as uh, put them in the cloud for you to watch it. Take care of all of that. That can be done in a matter of days. All of those videos are Honda. As far as I know, yeah, I haven't heard any reports to the contrary. Walter. question is about the phone. So yes, when you're talking to somebody on the air doing a phone interview, you're doing that on the headphones, you're hearing your guest on the headphones, and you're talking to them on the mic. The, hand, the phone is a brick at that point. I see that, yeah. yes. Um, and John is sharing links as well. So yes, uh, apologies to the people on Zoom. I will try and uh, repeat back the questions in the room because I understand that you can't hear them very well, which is understandable. Um, and um, if uh, to the people in the room that are watching this chat, I'm not particularly watching this chat. So if you see a question that needs to be addressed, please alert me because I do want to include the people on Zoom. People on Zoom, if you can hear me, type your questions in the chat and uh, I will try and address them as quickly as I can with Brenda's in spotting what I should be doing here. Okay. Uh, question about the USB drive. Again, I don't have the machines or the pictures in front of me, but that is super easy. If you have your USB thumb drive, you know where the slot is, joint, you put it in. Um, it takes the screen, the machine takes a second to focus. The screen will blank. You'll see zeros in the counter that weren't there before you started, uh, and then you'll know you're ready to go. Hit the record button once, it goes into pause mode, and at that point you'll see levels bouncing that you're getting input, and then hit record a second time, and it'll start to roll, and you'll see the counter counting. Um, and then when you're done, just hit stop, give it a second to close the file, you'll see the screen blank, take the thumb drive out, and you're on your way file will be saved to your thumb drive with a date code as the file name so you can easily identify your show by the date code and uh, you know for the I don't know exactly how much space they take up maybe some of you better than I do but you can fit many 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 shows on one thumb drive so space is not really an issue especially if you go to the drugstore and you buy the slightly bigger thumb drive you know, don't buy the four, buy the sixteen, or whatever. I don't know what these days. But buy a slightly bigger thumb drive, and you can put a year's worth of shows on there. Spotify. Yes, Susan Luminello, I can hear you. Hi. 
Um, can you, you can hear me? Okay. Um, the last, the last time we had a DJ meeting, somebody, uh, who seemed to know a lot said we shouldn't be using Spotify as our broadcasting medium, um, which I do. So, uh, and she had some good reasons for that or seemingly good reasons. So I want to know, is it okay to use Spotify for real? I don't want to get the station in trouble, so on and so forth. Um, and if it's not okay to use Spotify, <laughs> what is there something else I can use that's really, really, really easy? Thanks. So, thank you for the question. Uh, yes, that was a uh, topic of discussion at the last meeting, and I have thoughts. Um, so Belinda is the woman's name who brought up that topic and in particular was objecting to the use of Spotify as a broadcast tool. And I respect Belinda tremendously. She's been in this field for a long time and knows a lot about the business. And we have actually hired her as a consultant to help us with strategic planning. I disagree with her on this issue. I want to be as clear as possible about that. Um, it's okay to use streaming services as a broadcast tool and you're not putting the station at any risk as a result of doing so. Full stop. Um, now we can get into the pluses and minuses of that, and I think we should. So Belinda, I think, if I understood her, and, and I don't want to misinterpret her, but her main objection to Spotify was an economic argument that the artists aren't making any money it, Spotify is a bad business deal for music makers. And those of you that make records will know this. Um, your royalties are um, comical. Uh, and so it's not good for artists. And Belinda wants to make sure that artists are properly compensated for their work, which I respect tremendously. From a legal perspective, it is, I would say, possible. And I have certainly entertained and even uh, made this argument myself in the past that it is part of the uh, terms of use of the software providers, whether Spotify or any of the others out there, Amazon, Apple, whatever you might be using, it's part of their terms of service that you're not going to um, redistribute their product. Um, the chances of anyone ever getting caught and or prosecuted for that are slim and none and the penalties would be to have to say we're sorry i think maybe um you know i won't do that again uh but as a matter of fact there are other people who are leaders in our field including ken friedman who is the station manager at wfmu in north jersey broadcast to the new york city metro area He's loud and proud in uh, favor of using streaming services for okay. broadcast tools. So um, to Belinda's economic argument, the artists would all, and many of them do, give us promotional copies for free to put on the radio anyway. We are helping to promote their work. They are thrilled to be on the radio. The artists are not going to have a problem with us putting their record on the radio however we got it. Um, you know, if we bought it out of the trunk of a car from a guy in the parking lot, they would be happy to put their record on the radio. Um, so I'm not worried about streaming as a legal or practical 
point of contention between us and anybody else. That's uh, my case uh, legally about Spotify. I used to also have a problem about streaming services because the sound quality was crap compared to CDs. But they've come a long way over the last 10, 15 years. And, um, and also people's ears have adjusted to what MP3s sound like. And so whatever, we meet in the middle. The technology got better and that's just what people are used to hearing these days. Everybody listens to streaming services. So uh, 320 MP3 is the industry standard for tech specs, if you understand that. Um, there are ways of doing it better and I would encourage you to look into that. Spotify, I think, still does not offer an audiophile version. I subscribe to a streaming service called Tidal, which does offer CD quality streaming and, in fact, above higher resolutions than CD quality. Um, there's another streaming service called Cobuzz that does the same. There are a lot of choices out there, and it is worth uh, going down the wormhole of tech specs to get the best sound quality you can. Um, it costs more to get the audiophile version. So I think I'm paying 20 bucks a month instead of 10 bucks a month, roughly. Um, so that's to be considered. That having been said, if you are going to use streaming as your broadcast tool, it's imperative that you do it as best you can, right? And so what that means is you absolutely have to get a paid subscription. Yes. Ads are right out, um, unacceptable. That's number one. Number two, I would encourage you to look into getting the audiophile version. I think Spotify has been working on it for years. I'm not a Spotify user, so I don't know where they're at on that. But um, if it's not here already, I think Spotify is coming out with a high res version soon. But there are others out there in the marketplace that are competitive on price and uh, library. You know, so another factor about streaming services that you have to remember is that they're limited it seems like you have access to everything but i am sure all of you if you're an active streamer have gone to look for your thing on spotify and it's not there so no matter where you find your music get multiple sources because if you want the you know indie small label locally you know whatever the, the sort of stuff that we specialize in the major corporations are not here to sponsor that sort of sound i got news for you and so again it's know what you're trying to do and then find the tools that do that thing don't find a tool and say hey i got a saw let's go saw stuff because that's what i got that's not the best way of doing things um also about streaming services, one of the things that is a challenge, and, and again, those of you that do this on a regular basis will be familiar with this, is that there's buffering, there's pauses in between songs. It does not give you as direct control over your material as you would like, as I would like you to have. Um, so part of this is, again, knowing how to use the tools, being on the job so that if there are large gaps at the end of your song, you can push forward to the next one and get rid of that five seconds of silence that's at the end of the file. Um, there's nothing you can do about the buffering. Sometimes you push play and it's got to call the mothership to get the yeah. signal, whatever. And that's, there's no way around that. Okay. Actually, Maddie, on, Matt. you, on the last point you made, I think the best practice is, I know I need to do it on the Apple service. You can download yeah. everything prior and then I turn off my computer 
So not only is there no buffer, but if someone texts you, you know, you're not getting any interest. Excellent. Thank you for that. Yeah. Yes. Uh, that, yes. From, oh. from, from Zoom. Yes. Hi, it's Felice. I use a classical streaming service in addition to CDs. I download everything. I usually play from my phone. I shut off all the other functions, put it in airplane mode, and knock on wood, things have been going well. <laughs> the other thing I make a point of doing is identifying the players, the label, the approximate date of release so that listeners are getting the full information that they need should they want to either download or purchase an actual LP or CD. So I'm yeah. trying I'm trying to maintain the same standard that we would have in the old days. So that's another excellent point is that liner notes don't come with digital files. And so you need to get your information in other ways. So uh, making the transition from physical media to digital media changes a lot of things. Um, and, and it's two or three steps forward, but it is also one or two steps backwards. So back in the day, when I was flipping through bins of records, I would know which one I wanted because I wanted the pink one, whatever. You can't do that with digital files. There are no visual cues like that. And they don't come with a book, mostly. Um, sometimes they do. But uh, uh, it, as Felice points out, you got to do your research in other ways. And so you're either really good about second screening while you're on the air, or you've done all of that ahead of time. Um, and because you have to use Wikipedia and other sources, go to label websites, you know, um, I find retail websites sometimes have really good descriptions of the product. And you can, especially as Felice says, if you've got a genre specific retailer, a classical music specialty store, um, you know, Gary and I have similar interests. You go to Dusty Groove for the soul and R&B and jazz stuff, they have really extensive write-ups on the product and you can find out who's on the record and who you know is related to what's going on and, and all of those sort of liner notes kind of things. So you have to stay hip with that. Robert Johnson had a comment about Plex. Yes, uh, I can answer that quickly. Um, Plex is a, a database that I built in the office so all of the CDs, essentially all of the CDs that cross my desk, including all of the ones that are in the room in the OMR library are ripped to digital files on a server in the office. There's this piece of software, it's an app called Plex. You can put it on any device, um, desktop or mobile, and it allows you to, sh to get access to that content. Um, what you need to do is drop me a line and then I send you an invite to share that library. I am sad to report that that app is not as stable as I want it to be. So be aware that it's janky. Um, and I would use it as a research tool. I would be super hesitant to use it as a broadcast tool, honestly. But it does allow you to access the library at home so that you can see what's there. And then if there's stuff in our library that you want to use, for broadcast, then you know it's there. And I would set it up either by going and finding those CDs in, in the collection, or even what I would do is 
find those digital files on the server and play them from the local drive without the uh, app. You just have direct access to the server at that point, you're in the office. Um, but so Plex, again, Plex is an app. It looks like a streaming service. It looks and plays like Spotify. You can make playlists on it, all of those things that you would expect a music app to do. It does, but it's drawing on files of a database that I built. And so it gives you access and lets you know that those digital files are on the server in the office. And then, as I said, I would use the company computer to access those directly rather than using Plex as a broadcast tool because it, it it's just buggy. Um, it, it crashes. If, if you use it on a regular basis, you will from time to time have to call me and say, I can't get in and I'll have to jiggle the handle and I go to the back end and do software things and try and get it to work. Um, and most of the times it does come back. Uh, I haven't given up on it. It works just well enough to be super frustrating. <laughs> hey, Matt, this is Robert. Can I, uh, I don't write yeah. on weekends. Can this count as a letter to you saying, please give me access? <laughs> uh, nope, it needs to be in writing or else I won't remember. <laughs> and also I need to, I need to actually send, physically send you an email with the link. So. Um, All right, I'll break my rules. <laughs> uh Yes, I'm just looking at the chat here, make sure I'm not missing anybody. Uh, Dinah wanted to know about the different qualities of audio files. So um, there, there are resolutions, uh, and this is something I've learned over time. So MP3 is sort of, has come to be a generic term for digital files. And, and back in the day, that was what they were. Um, you know, going back 20, five years at this point to the invention of the digital file. And I was one of those early adopters of LimeWire and Kazaa and, um, you know, stealing stuff, basically. Uh, the bad old days of the uh, um, internet in terms of that. And, and those, as it turns out, those files were incredibly poor quality, but it was magic that you could get access to anything because that was peer-to-peer -peer sharing. Anyway, we've come a long way since then. Um, so now the industry standard for MP3, as far as I'm concerned, is 300 kbps, I think is the metric on that. Um, 320 is, is a good MP3. Unfortunately, now I play all MP3 uh, digital files on my local drive. Is That's how I do my show. And I have come to use lossless files like Waves and Flax. And there are a million other file formats out there, but those are the biggies. Um, and so waves and flax are higher resolution. That's essentially CD quality. Daniel. Fran's waiting to get in. Oh, thank you. I'm gonna run out of battery. Does anybody have a Mac power cord by any chance? You do? Oh, you're the best. Um, Um, so anyway, uh, it, it, you can be aware of tech specs and do better. This is the lighter one. Yeah, the little one. Beauty. Let's hope this does it. Um, please stand by. Oh, I see. Um, 
Yeah, is that the plan B you were talking about? Yes. <laughs> yep. And Walter, too. Always have a Walter. This <laughs> my friend. <laughs> Yeah. Yay, thank you, Walter. Um, the people on Zoom will not be uh, unceremoniously dumped out of the meeting. Um, okay, so uh, another thing about streaming services, how to do it right. Forget about the details of, of sound quality, other than know that there are a lot of details in there and it's worth knowing about those details to get the best product you can. Lossless high resolution files are better. MP3s, not so great, but Spotify and the other major, major streaming services are doing a good enough job with that now. If you're shopping for MP3s, you really have to be much more careful. I used to do a lot of downloading of files from Amazon and they are low resolution crap files. If you wanna buy music, go to Bandcamp or Cobuzz or there are other retailers that will sell you high resolution files. And I'd be happy to talk to you offline about that. Um, the other thing about streaming services, the way to really do it right is to have two windows going and also the download your, your sources. So this is key. Again, I don't use streaming as a broadcast tool, so I, I don't have direct experience of this, but all of those streaming services will have a listen offline function in some form or fashion, download your playlist. Mm -hmm. You're not really downloading your playlist, you're downloading temporary files that do allow you to listen offline in airplane mode. Also, as Paul points out, turn off all your notifications, no beeps and boops while you're on the air. That's bad form. Um, it happens, but you can avoid it relatively easily by turning off all your notifications and go into the settings of your operating system in order to do that. Just turn Wi-Fi off. That'll do that too, sure. As long as you got your files lo local um, to listen offline. Um, and then the other thing I would do is get the family version of any of these services. So Spotify or any of the other ones, you know, you pay $5 more a month and it allows you to share it with other people in your household so that you can have four, five, you can have five different versions of the thing going. You can't do it on the same machine, I don't think, but you bring your machine and you got the company machine and you log into your account on both screens and now you've got two players on Spotify that you can crossfade at will. And if you double down and, and uh, get your playlist local, so you have the listen offline on the company computer and on your computer, now you got full control over what you're doing, and that is the right way to do streaming as a broadcast tool. Um, so uh, it's a it's pretty tricky. Um, you got two screens going now that are both streaming content. So, but that's a, that's a way to because the problem with using streaming as a broadcast tool, from my perspective. Even if you have a, a download listen offline function is it's still a point source. You can't crossfade. Mm -hmm. And so plenty of music has like some, you know, unbearable 35 second fade that, you know, is great when you're in your bedroom and not so great when you're a broadcaster, because the last 20 seconds of that song are at 10 percent volume and the person in their car thinks you went off the air. Um, so what having two sources allows you to do is allows that 
fade to fade just as long as it wants to, and you can start the next song before it's done, and you have a seamless playback, um, which again is ultimately, I think, what you want to be able to do uh, to get the smoothest possible broadcast. What's the best way to queue things up? Uh, or, or, so, you know, you have a CD and you want to hear it before you go live with it. Great question. So the question is about how to queue things. Uh, each channel on the board has a queue button. Mm -hmm. um, if you push that queue button and then hit play on whatever source that is, that will play back out of the little speakers on the dashboard. You have the nice speakers that jam the, that are, you know, you, what you normally listen to program on. But right in the dashboard itself, there are little bitty speakers that don't sound very good, but they don't have to because you're just listening offline to hear the next thing. You, of course, you can't do that if both pieces of music are on the same machine. Because if I'm using my laptop as a broadcast tool, right. I can't listen to the next thing on the <laughs> thing that's already playing. So you have to have two different sources. But assume, and, and in my description of how to do Spotify, you would have two different sources mm -hmm. because you'd have the company computer over here logged into your own personal account, of course. Public computer, don't forget to log out. Don't forget to take your USB drive with you when you're done recording. And don't forget to log out of all your accounts on the company computer. Um, but if you have Spotify on your right and Spotify on your left, and the left is your machine and the right is our machine, then you can hit that Q button on the top of each individual channel on the right. board. Is it the one with the cluster four? Just below that, yep. Um, and then there's a Q volume to the right. So you have all those sliders and then there's uh, a, a different set of controls all the way to the right. And one of those is a rotary knob with a Q volume. Most of the time it'll already be up and that's not an issue, but you do need to be aware that when you put something into Q, you have to also turn up the Q volume in order to hear it coming out of those little dashboard speakers. And I don't have to do anything to kill going live, going on air once I hit Q. The slider's down and the channel's not on. So it's still, that slider is off and, and the slider is down, but you cue it in the top and the cue volume on the right will control how loud it is to you in the studio and it will not pollute your broadcast. When you're then, you've got that queued up, you're convinced it's the right piece of music, you've got it set to start where you want to, turn cue off, then push the slider up, turn the channel on, you're ready to go. Um, and yeah, whatever's in program at the time is unaffected by all of that. Um, you mentioned the four buttons at the top of the slider. Please don't touch those. Um, <laughs> they all, so those are what are called bus lines. One of them is program, which is sending it out to the transmitter. Those other bus lines are sending it either to the recorder or to the stream, they're, they're all sending that signal to different places. And so we've had experience where if one of those bus lines is cut off, you're not going to hear that channel on wherever the outlet was. So for example, the USB recorder is capturing all of those different channels to the USB. If one of them's turned off, now you just got 10 minutes of blank while that source was playing because the bus line was turned off. 
So you want to make sure all those lights are lit at the top of the but panel. But they all have to be live on all of the faders that you're accepting. Uh, the, the, there's three out of four of them. They should all look the same. And so if you get in there and like 90% of them look the same, but there's one or two that are out of whack, just light the ones to make them look like the rest of them. Um, you see the comment from Yeah, there? I do. I, I do. Question while we're talking about the board. Yep. Two questions. Do you agree that each source is slightly different in terms of how hot it is? A hundred percent. Okay. And that's even if you don't change channels. Every time you change a piece of music. Right. So when you look at the output, the two little lines, yeah, you know, that are mostly that are always moving around. What ideally should be happening in terms of dipping into other colors? Like some songs will have quiet parts and loud parts. Are, are you adjusting the whole time? And what, what's the ideal thing that should be going on? So uh, in case the Zoomers didn't hear that, uh, the question is about where to set your levels and how do they change over time based on different variables. And, and the answer for me is I want it as hot as I can get it without seeing any red. So basically what that means is that the green is almost always all lit and we're bouncing around in the yellow. If I see red, it's time to back off. Um, and yes, I do adjust it even within a piece of music. If it's got a quiet start, then I'm giving it some gas until we get to the drums, whatever, you know? Um, because again, the people at home, the people listening on the radio, you know, they're in the workshop, they're in the car, you know, that nice quiet little instrumental opening just disappears in background noise. And so you really, again, you wanna have those levels, those meters on the board as high as they can go without seeing red. Red is very bad. If you're gonna make a mistake, it's better to be too quiet than too hot. Because if you go into the red, it starts to distort and there's nothing that the listener can do at the end to fix that. If you're in, if you're redlining your sources, it's just gonna sound like that. And, and, and on the other hand, if you're broadcasting too quiet, the person at home can just turn up the volume and it'll still sound reasonably good. Um, not ideal, but better than too much. Um, so yeah, and then as I said, every piece of music has its own in, uh, individual characteristics. So stuff that was recorded in the digital age is gonna be pretty saturated. Stuff that was recorded 50, 60, 70 years ago just wasn't engineered for the kind of playback that we're using. And so, it is much more dynamic. Um, and what that means is that the loud bits are loud and the quiet bits are very quiet. In the digital era, all of that stuff has been super compressed. So if you put a digital file into your audio editor, it's gonna be pretty even across the, the wavelengths in terms of what it looks like in, in, on a, in, a, in a wave file. Um, so anyway, Older music is especially challenging because it wasn't engineered for the digital era. And so you need to be much more careful about your sources there. Yeah, Steve. Um, some of the albums that I play, I have to jack it up all the way to the top, beyond yes. that line. And then I get periodically just one speaker coming out. 
And I don't know if that's because the, all those buttons at the top of the turntable thing is not done. No. Or is it because it's monoral? That's bad news to me. Uh, that should not be happening. Um, so first of all, and the question is about turntables in particular and vinyl users and, and that they are not uh, as hot as the other sources. In other words, there's not as much gain in the turntables themselves, which means you do have to give the slider a lot more gas. If it's a quiet beginning to the song, even though it's up there, it's telling me I'm not. Yes, it. no, and that's 100% true. And I have fiddled with the back end to try and improve that situation. But um, I have given it all the boost I can, given the tools that I have. And it's just a fact of life that vinyl is quieter. Um, the fact that one channel is dropping out means there's a bad wire somewhere, and I need to attack that. So um, even if it's monoral, I should... You should get it on both sides. Both yes. Not. So... Uh, and I sometimes I... I'll check after and see if there was dust on the needle or something, it, which may have impeded anything on that. It's possible that the problem is at the cartridge. It's more likely that the problem is at the phono preamp in the back of the player. I can show you how to jiggle those wires. Um, okay. there's, um, so each turntable has a little box behind it that helps to step up the game that I was just talking about because you're starting with a very faint mechanical signal out of a record. And so then it needs a preamp before it even gets to the rest of the system that boosts it. And so one of those wires coming out the back of the turntable, I think is just not making a connection very well. So um, yeah, I, I'll take a look at that or you can call me when it happens. Um, it, it honestly, it's just a matter of jiggle the handle. Um, and uh Hopefully that will solve the problem. Uh, yes. Just a quick question. Which unit in the rack is the USB recorder? Uh, the USB recorder is closest in the rack, closest to the window. And I believe it's the second machine down. Um, I have a video that I'll share with you. Um, okay. Uh, there are there's a couple of machines there that look very similar. There's a CD player number four, which I think is the top slot in that rack. And then I think the USB recorder is just under that. And then there's a CD recorder. The, the USB recorder does not have a CD slot in it. So that will set it apart from the other ones. Um, so uh, what else should we talk about? We covered streaming pretty good, right? Um Matt, this is Felice. I just thought I'd mention uh, for uh, particularly sort of historic recordings, golden oldies, classics, and the like, um, if you can find the most recent remastering that uses the best technology, you can often compensate for the so-called flatness or lack of depth that some of the early CDs had. That used to be a criticism of the old CD versus non-digital. And I found over the years, so many recordings have been remastered multiple times as the technology has improved. Uh, if you really wanna get the 
the complete, um, you know, bang for your buck, whoever the performer is, sometimes you can do that just by getting a current remaster. Yep. Uh, and I would shop around on that. Sometimes the most current one is not the best one. Um, but yes, with, with recordings that are, uh, you know, originally recorded decades ago, there will be many different versions of those recordings, uh, you know, and including different sessions so that it's not, it's literally a different performance, um, but you'll also get different um, engineering, different masterings of the same recording. Um, and people will have different opinions about which one they think is the best uh, release of, you know, whatever, any sort of historic recording you know i'm i'm working mostly uh with blues and r&b records from the 40s and 50s and earlier um and uh but it same would be true of classical or folk or any other genre too that you know there will be better and less quality releases of uh the same piece of music uh what other topics should we talk about walter Going back to when you had um, there are two yep. streaming services. This is a question. Um, the second part is telling you. Yeah. <laughs> so you got the two things on. You got your own computer and the companies. Um, you could fade back and forth without without a mixer. So the question is, if we had uh, the suggested two-screen streaming solution, how do we fade back and forth? The second part of the question is, you have a physical DJ thing. Yep. Martin O'Leary has like a picture. Yep, so yep. Those really basically makes Yes. Uh, so <laughs> uh, the question is, uh, the second part of the question was uh, about people that bring their own mixers and their own DJ software. And that is an excellent segue because that's a topic I think of interest to a fair number of people. Um, so starting with the streaming question, if you've got streaming on two different screens, yes, you can fade back and forth using the company's broadcast console. So you don't have your own mixer. You, you're using the broadcast mixer because you've got one of them will be pigtail and one of them will be computer. And you've got a separate slider for each. And you use those to, you know, play two sources at once, which is what you're doing when you're crossfading. Um, and so, yeah, you're bringing the one piece of music down on the pigtail as you start the next piece of music on the computer. Um, or people that play local files, people that are buying their music, uh, either MP3s or I still am buying CDs. When I buy a CD now, I immediately turn it into a WAV file or a FLAC file because I do all of my work on the laptop but there's stuff available on CD that isn't available as a download. So I go buy CDs and make my own digital copies of it. And that's how I do that. Um, many of you will know that I have my own mixing board that I bring into the studio to do my show. And I have a piece of DJ software that is connected to that hardware that allows me to do all of these things on one source on my own computer. Uh, I use a program called Tractor, which is T-R-A-K-T-O-R. 
Um, you can use the software for that without the hardware um, and just use your mouse to do all the controls. It is exactly a mixing board with two or in fact even four decks depending on how fancy you want to get. Um, and those two or four decks are, are all on your screen and you can and, and all of the controls of a mixing board. So separate individual sliders for each one of those decks, as well as a crossfader that goes back and forth. Um, it's a, a different beast than the broadcast console. A, a DJ mixer is different from a live band mixer. Um, you know, so sometimes people assume that because I do what I do, I could go engineer the show at Payomat. That's a different animal. Um, and so if you're a musician and you're used to using the mixer that's in the bar or whatever, the DJ mixer is a little different than that. Um, it's got controls that are specific to playing back sources for DJs. Um, the uh, choices out there for DJ software at the entry level change all the time. And I would literally have to go to Google and see what's hot this year to make recommendations to you. There used to be a program called Mix, M-I-X-X, -X, I think it is. Careful how you Google. Um, <laughs> that was an entry level piece of software uh, that the, as, the essentials of it is that you have two decks and it integrates with your library. So you have your own library of digital files and uh, again, this is how I work. I, I enjoy building my own collection. I go shopping at different websites to buy files. Um, and I can tell you all about that world if you want um, in one-on-one. -on -one. Um, yes, correct. So I have an external hard drive. In my case, I think it's four or five terabytes. Um, you don't need that much even with the insane obsessive amount of collecting that I do, I have not come close to filling four terabytes on my external hard drive, even as I upgrade from MP3s to lossless files that take up a lot more space. So memory is cheap uh, these days. I mean, I use this is, goes back to the file format question. MP3s don't take up much space. And so when memory was super expensive 20 years ago, that made a huge difference. Now you can get a terabyte for 30 bucks or something like memory is virtually free. Um, the four or five terabyte external hard drives that I buy are a hundred bucks, 120 bucks, something like that. And, and they don't last forever. Um, be aware that that is a physical object that degrades over time and data security is super important. Um, so make copies of your stuff. Don't your computers crash. Don't have it all in one place. Um, and again, I can help you with all of that. Um, but yes, if you're going to do that, if you're going down that road of maybe you've got a pre-existing CD collection that you want to digitize, I can help you with that. You can use iTunes or various other programs to put the CD in your disk drive, turn it into digital files, and now it's on your computer. Um, that's how I started. That's how everybody starts, really, right? Um, you can do it with records. Records are a pain to digitize because it's analog. Um, you put a CD in the thing and you push, make a copy and it makes a copy. And it takes a few minutes, but it only takes a few minutes. 
uh, for, you know, whatever, there's 60 minutes worth of music on that CD. It might take you five, 10 at the most minutes to make a copy of that on your computer. Uh, and then all of those files mostly will be labeled already and um, ready to go. If you want to digitize a record, a, a piece of vinyl, first of all, you have to have a different set of equipment. You have to have something that allows you to plug your record player into your computer. That's non-trivial. And then you have to actually play the record in real time, right? You can't just say, hey, make a copy. You have to play the record into your computer. And then you've got an unlabeled file that you have to go through and put the song breaks and all of the labels. You have to do the data entry yourself. When you put a CD into iTunes, iTunes says, hey, you just gave me Charlie Parker. That's great. You want, you want a copy of Charlie Parker over here? I can do that. Um, so it's much easier to make a digital library from a pre-existing CD collection than vinyl collection. I only do it with, I started out thinking I was going to do that with my entire record collection and I realized that was a fool's errand. And now I only do it uh, with records that I can't get anywhere else. And this goes back to one of my earlier comments, which is don't close any doors. If you're going, um, all of us are into obscure music for the most part, right? We're all playing records that are hard to find, that are niche, whatever. So, you know, if I'm into, you know, the old blues and R&B and there was only a few hundred copies of this made back in the day and I've got one and it never made it to Spotify, I want to preserve that. Well, then, yes, that's a record that I will make the effort to put into my computer. So there's way to get in. Oh, Mr. Mulliken, go away. Come in. Um, so then, okay, you've got your, your digital library. It's on a hard drive. I prefer an external hard drive. Make copies of it because hard drives lost, get lost, break, whatever. Do you do offsite storage? So, yes, the, the best practice for that is not one copy, but two copies. And what that means in best practice is I have two actual physical hard drives in different locations, and I have a cloud copy. And in fact, I'm doing more copies than that. But having two separate copies of hard drives, both in your desk drawer, is no good if your house burns down. Um, so have one at work and one at home, and then also use Google, Dropbox, whatever. <laughs> um, mostly Dropbox mostly Dropbox these days. Um, but I also have fully stocked servers at Provincetown and at home, as well as my mobile and Dropbox. And I've probably got digital crumbs elsewhere. Um, I, I have used a variety of cloud services over the years like other um, companies and especially tech companies, they come and go. So I used Amazon, had a great um, service for this purpose of cloud storage for your own personal digital archive and they discontinued the product. Um, so anyway, uh, Dropbox is the one I use, but there are plenty of other choices out there. Um, Google's fully functional too. I think this is a related question, Maddie. <clears throat> For our, our two-week archive that we do, nice. Um, I uh, often, what if I forget to do my USB drive and I want to grab that? I have to ask you. Correct. Is there an easier way? Like, is there any way a user can grab that? Archive? Absolutely not. 
Um, is that by design? That's by law. Oh. <laughs> uh, that, that is copyright rules that make us not be able to make those files public. Now, this is another one of those situations like the terms of service on Spotify. There are ways, and in fact, there are websites designed to host radio shows for more than two weeks. Mixcloud is one of them off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. um, and so there are plenty of people out there who host their own shows on their own websites. In other words, if you came up with a recording of your radio show on your USB drive in the studio, and then you went home and you trimmed that so that it was just the parts you wanted, you know, obviously you got to hit record before yeah. the show starts. And so you get some number of seconds of the previous show in order to do it right. You would want to trim all that. And then you could post it to your own website. There are plenty of people doing that. I don't know of anyone that's gotten in trouble for it. Mm -hmm. um, so, but no, I can't, the radio station can't, as a matter of law, make those files downloadable publicly. I am more or less happy to do it for you as long as it doesn't become a habit. There's one volunteer right now who um, needs to be a little bit more guilty about asking me for the help in that regard. And so we'll work with him to find the is right. Is he in the room right now? He is not. Okay. <laughs> What's the name of that program you just mentioned about? Mixcloud is a website that hosts files. Um, I also use SoundCloud quite a bit. SoundCloud is a site specifically for independent music producers, largely catering to the hip hop and electronic music genres, but it's lots of other people use it too. You may have noticed that that is the site that I use to host the talk show files. So anything that goes into the podcast section of the WMR website, those files actually live on SoundCloud because I can get unlimited storage for like 120 bucks a year or something. And so it allows me to just have a locker that I can then embed those files onto our website and get the, get the user experience that I want. And those files are downloadable. So if you want, because the talk shows are things that we own the rights to. I see. Music, we don't own the rights to. And so I'm legally not allowed to distribute those files because of copyright. Okay, another related question? Yeah. Because storage is cheap, as you said, why do we only keep them for two weeks? Because that's not my storage. Um, that is off. That is storage that lives at Stream Guys. Yeah. And that storage they charge me for, that storage is not cheap. Mm -hmm. um, if, if it was on my server, if it was a roll your own situation, then I would feel differently about it. And we do um make an effort to archive some shows by hand at home using our own gear i won't go into the details of that but it's a challenge uh logistically uh but we do we do have a rolling archive in the office um that is really uh a a, a resource of last resort so with the archives, first of all, there the company that we use for the stream in general is called Stream Guys. They're a big player. We get great service from them. They have clients are some of the biggest corporate entities out there. You know, so we are swimming in the big pond with our stream server uh, provider. They have a seventy-two hour catch-all rolling archive. So if you do a show. 
and it doesn't appear on the website in the broadcast archives, call me within the first two days and I can get it off of that 72 hour rolling archive. If I have hit the right buttons, then it'll end up in the two week archive and that's a rolling situation. That's the standard two week broadcast that everybody has access to on the app and the website. Um, so that's the situation with the, the uh, uh, archive. Um, but yeah, I, so I can catch anything within the first 72 days. Stuff lives there for two weeks. It's not downloadable. I can download it from the back end and I'm more or less happy to do that. But that's a non-trivial um, uh, act. I, I need to tell you that it takes me more than just a click of a button to do that. I have to download the file and then I have to process it because it comes in a file format that you can't deal with. So I have to put it in the blender to turn it into the right kind of format that you could play in a player. And then I have to post it back, you know, and a three hour show doesn't just load in 30 seconds to put it in an email back to you. So it's not a tremendous pain in the ass, but we're talking about, you know, five or 10 minutes, non-trivial. Um, so uh, I'm happy to do it occasionally. Um, if you want to actually archive your show and um, the sound quality on the stream is great you'll get better sound quality out of the USB player marginally, but it will be better sound quality if you record it locally yourself, because every time a file goes through processing like that, it loses a little something in the translation. Um, so the, the, and this is part of my thing about streaming too, and why I prefer playing off my local drive. It's just, there are fewer steps in between me and my source. And, and the fewer machines that I can have in between, the, you know, the music and the ears, the better we're going to be. Um, and it's marginal. It's incremental. And your average mouse is not going to know the difference. But I'm a little obsessive. So. <laughs> the Plex server in the office. Yes. CDs uh, too. What did you rip them at? So most of them are at 320 MP3s. Um, again, I started that project six or seven years ago. Um, and uh, I wasn't sure about storage. So now I have convinced myself that we got plenty of headroom on the server at work. And so for the last year or two, I've been doing wave files. Um, so we have something like 24 terabytes of room on our servers at work divided up in, um, and, and I have two different talking about data security. I have the primary driver, which is the one that you can access from the DJ studio. The one that Plex reads from home, um, that's an eight terabyte and that's getting close to full actually at this point. But then I have the second server, which I am now mirroring and that job's almost done so that I have two entirely separate copies of the database, both in the server at work, which is still not where I want to be, but I'm getting there. Um, but that's filling up the second server, which is 16 terabytes of space. Yes. Okay, so real quick. 
spinatron, which I wish I had invented. How does that interface with the OMR schedule? So like, it seems to know Brenda's supposed to be on House of Hope at six o'clock and everything's cool. If I'm filling in for Indira on a Sunday, it does not want to know about that. I just don't deal with it. I just say, whatever. Fair. Um, Is that the best way to do it? Indira calls us at six o'clock in the morning when it's not right. <laughs> I like your way better. <laughs> I, I just don't care that much. But how does, who's telling Spinatron? Okay. That's all by hand. Uh, that's right. Let me tell you a little story about calendars. <laughs> the bane of my existence. Um, they are significantly more complicated than meets the eye. Sometimes there's a fifth Wednesday. Um, um, so especially in time slot, so in sub situations, I have to go in and label that by hand. Most of the time I do, sometimes I don't. Um, but so there's a calendar for Spinatron, there's a calendar for the streamer and the broadcast archive, and there's the Google calendar, which is the master booking calendar, the, the one that you see on the schedule tab on the website. And so every time something changes on the calendar, I got to change Google, Stream Guys, and Spinatron, and maybe more. And all three of those calendar apps work differently. Um, Google is actually, I think, the strongest, although the Spinatron calendar is pretty useful too. Um, so in order to handle things like every fourth Thursday, whatever, it's hard to automate that stuff. Not impossible, but it's a super challenge. And so a lot of stuff gets missed. Um, much more than I would want to be the case. And especially now with the app, a lot of those things are a lot more transparent, right? Because it's got the show title and the host name as well as now playing right on the front page of the app. And so if I didn't get those labels right, it, it pains me. Um, so call me, seriously, I want all those details to be right. What you can do, uh, is start your own playlist in parallel. So just open a new playlist and say, I'm doing this now. Um, you'll fight with the computer because Spinatron will have a pre-existing playlist there that it's trying to force everything into, but you can do the data entry by hand. Um, I'm not sure how the algorithms, I, I think the algorithms are still gonna try and send everything to that other playlist. So that's, it's a much better situation if, we can uh, solve that problem before it develops. Um, one thing I think is true, I think this is true. If you go to the WOMR page on Spinatron, you can access the schedule calendar yourself on what the Spinatron data says, right? So there's a schedule tab on WOMR.org. That's the Google calendar. But if you go to spinatron.com or spinatron.org, whatever it is, I think it's .com, um, OMR has a, a page there. So like if you go to the House of Hope, you'll see links to go to WOMR in general. And I believe that you can access the schedule tab there. Um, you let's can, see. Maddie. Yeah, yeah. I am getting confirmation from the Zoomers. Um, so you can see you know, go there a day in advance and make sure that I've got your name where it's supposed to be. And if it's not, you know, together we can solve that problem. Um, 
The other thing I know is true, uh, John and I have been working with the people at Spinatron on this to try and figure out subs are a super challenge. Um, because not only that, I have to take the other host off. And there's an open question about, am I deleting that show? Mm. Am I retiring? Because they're coming back next week. And so how do I get the new person in there without deleting the other person? It, it's a challenge. We're learning. But one of the things that we learned recently is that if you go in in advance and open a new playlist, as some of you do, and say, okay, I'm going to be on tomorrow. Let's open that playlist right now and say, Sam's going to be on Sunday at six. I'll just, you know, schedule that playlist Saturday because you can do the data entry ahead of time too. If you script your show, if you have your spreadsheet, whatever, your playlist ready to go, you could do all of that data entry in advance and it would roll out um, with according to the timestamps. Now, I don't recommend that because the chances of you matching your performance to the preloaded timestamps are mm, slim and none. But uh, nevertheless, you can populate all of that ahead of time and it'll just roll out as scheduled. For recorded shows may work well. Um, for live shows, absolutely not. But what you can do is just open a new playlist. Don't put any songs on it. Just say, new playlist. I'm doing you know, Africa Oye on the 4th at 6 p.m. Great. Done. Close. Walk away. I believe that that new playlist that you created will preempt whatever's on the schedule. So you can override it. That's right. If in advance. If you do it in advance. Um, so that I recommend. So Spinatron's been a great resource for us. They're a tremendous company. They offer a lot of tools on their on their website. I recommend that you do a deep dive on all these things. Check out the schedule. Look at the data there. You can customize your own profile. You can put in a description of yourself and your show, and you can post images for each of those. And so you can get a pretty customized little presentation for yourself on Spinatron all by yourself, without my help. Do you need a login or something? Yeah, everybody has a Spinatron account. Every DJ, before you have your first shift, I create a login for you with your own account so that you can go in and edit your playlist as it happens. If I haven't done that for you, let me know and I can do it. I think I should have. I certainly should have. Do I do everything I should? Yeah. <laughs> um, Neither do I. <laughs> um, so, uh, and, and again, with the app, a lot of these things that we didn't necessarily use before have a higher profile. If you put in that show description, that'll pop up on the front page of the app when you're on the air. Pablo, have you done this for yes. yourself? And yeah. so your little show description shows up on the front. Yeah, and your image. image you want yes. Yeah. Um, so all of that is now public facing, which we didn't necessarily have before. So I recommend that you do that. That's another way of engaging with the audience and, you know, being interesting. Um, I think we'd all like to be interesting, wouldn't we? Um, so, uh, and then also, you know, again, there's all of these sort of uh, um, breadcrumbs across the internet. Uh, you can add your show description and a description of yourself to the Google Calendar. I think I need to do that for you because you don't have editing privileges over that mm -hmm. calendar. God help me. Um, but if you, you know, if you have a show description, I can paste it into the Google. Um, 
And uh, stream guys, I think there are fields for that. Currently, what I'm doing for stream guys in the broadcast archive is just putting the name of the show host. But theoretically, we could put a lot more there too. And you will notice too, if you use the archives, that there are headshots for a lot of you when you're on the air. There's an image associated with your broadcast archive on stream guys. So these are all things that you can do to, you know, whatever, help get the word out about what you're doing. Um, and those of you who don't have a profile on the website, um, send me a headshot and a few words that I can put out there and I'd be happy to share that. Um, and uh, for a number of you, I have built little personalized players so that if you do have a profile page on our meet the people section of the website, I can build a little personal player for you so that now you have a direct link to your broadcast archive that you wouldn't have otherwise. Right. Because right now, if you say, want to make a social media post and say, hey, I was on the air last night. Everybody should go listen to my show. Unless we do some extra work, the only link that you have to share to people is to the OMR broadcast archives. And those people then have to scroll through to find your show. If instead you say, hey, go listen to me. I was on the air last night. And you say, oh, go to meet the people backslash Braintree Gym, and there's a player there that has only that show on it. And so that makes it a lot easier for your listeners to find your show. So circling back, if you haven't provided me with a headshot and a few words about yourself, do so, and I'll build a little page for you on the OMR website. And then furthermore, if it's interesting to you, I can build a player that will populate with only your shows those are details that I have to get right on the back end. So I have to say, you know, every time I schedule House of Hope, I have to say, okay, House of Hope, it's a fill-in on a Sunday morning. I have to tell that to go to the WOMR broadcast archives, but then I have to also tell it to go to the Brenda broadcast archives. And then those are all buttons I have to check. Mm -hmm. And so it may take me a minute to get it right, but uh, persistence pays. And so if you want those things and they're not happening, poke me. They're relatively easy, but it's a lot of details. And, and I don't always check the right box. Um, so, but I think all of these things are super, super cool, right? I mean, take a step back for a second and think about what we're doing together as a team and how hard it is, one, how rare it is how far do you have to drive to find another one of these? Um, uh, Blue Hill, Maine, or uh, New York State, owned by the. And there are smaller ones. There, there's community radio in Worcester. There's they're in Connecticut. They're they're around. It's not that they don't exist, but you're probably going a couple hundred miles at least. Um, and. I would happily compare the work that we do to the work that any of them are doing. Scott, yeah. Uh, I was listening to WERU last Saturday morning and uh, they played uh, Riley Walker's roundabout song, which has two swears in it that are clear. 
And I, I, I immediately dialed the station. And uh, I said, you know, there's there's that one minute, four seconds, and then I, and I, I had to edit him out in the past, and he's done that some point. So uh, she said, I don't care. I'm too busy. That is the wrong answer, my friend. <laughs> that is the wrong answer. So um, I just want to say, to finish the thought, I think that what we're doing here is amazingly cool. Um, and part of what makes it cool is that we have all of these uh, resources at our disposal of the broadcast archive, the new mobile app. It's going to be a slow build, but that's huge because as time marches on, and yes, it's still true that the vast majority of people are listening over the FM transmitter. I believe that. On the other hand, we have significant audience in the city of Boston, in the city of New York. You think about all of the second homeowners, all of the visitors, and now they can very easily take us home with them. And because we're as cool as we are, once people find us, they stay. The loyalty numbers are off the charts. The renewal rates for our sustaining members. If you have been on the air for any period of time, you know that the list gets longer, not shorter. People do not cancel their subscriptions to WOMR. They don't. Um, the open rates on our emails are absurd. Uh, I send out an email to 100 volunteers, 90 of them are opening the mail, and 10 of them are, yeah. some of those are dead. <laughs> <laughs> some of those are dead. <laughs> uh, so it's streaming beyond into the other realm. Yes, that's right. We have dead listeners. Yeah. We absolutely do. Um, it's amazing, the power of technology. Yes, sir. Could you go back up a step um, in, in terms of like swearing clearly in a song? What is acceptable? Is it just the seven words we can't say on television and radio? Or? So uh, thank you for that question. The question is about swearing and what's okay. And, and the short answer is, no, none of it's okay. And none of it's a particularly big deal either. Um, so there is no canonical list of seven words. Don't you know the ones? I really want to use some of them right now, but I'm going to restrain myself. Um, don't. Some of them are um, more upsetting to people than others, but ultimately it's about whether or not we get a complaint. And so you might say, you know, ass in the wrong place at the wrong time, and we get a complaint about it, and that's real. I have to respond to a customer complaint. And if somebody wanted to really push the issue, they could make our lives difficult. And um, to the point where I could potentially, the station could potentially be, have to get legal representation. Um, I'd rather not deal with lawyers. Um, and so if you can avoid it, you should avoid it. If it's a question in your mind about vocabulary, then don't do it. Or the technology is really pretty easy to make your own radio-friendly version, unless, of course, it's said 17 times over and over again in the refrain, then don't bleep and do it, you know? Um, or 
you know, if you're shopping uh, for digital files, there are radio-friendly edits available on the marketplace already produced. So find the radio edit. Um, now that having been said, again, it's community standards. We live in a very open-minded community and um, the uh, level of discourse on other broadcast outlets has mm, come down significantly over the years. And so there's been some rather famous cases at, oh, say the Super Bowl, where things happened and people got in trouble. And as far as I know, that's the last time anyone across the country was prosecuted or had any sort of case for obscenity in broadcast. And that is what, 25 years ago or something like that? Um, so as a matter of practice, it's not something you should be terribly worried about. We've all all of us have put on pieces of music that, whoops, didn't see that coming, forgot that was there. Just ignore it. Keep on moving. You don't have to pot down the music. You don't have to apologize. Hey, you know, what do you know? We uh, dropped another bomb. Um, you, you just ignore it. Act like it didn't happen. And most people will not even notice. And it's a non-issue in fleeting references. And in fact, if I had to get a lawyer, I'm pretty sure we could defend ourselves for fleeting references, as long as we understand that there's a policy to don't do that. And if you do do that, I'm going to ask you not to do that. And if you do it on a repeated basis, we might have to escalate the situation. But that's me covering our butt, because if the FCC comes down and says, what are you guys doing over here? I can say, I've got a policy and I enforce it. And this was a mistake. It won't happen again. I'm very sorry. It was a fleeting reference. We're okay. So, like a lot of the jump blues early R and like I like to play on my show, has very thinly veiled. Yes. Yes. I'm okay with the jelly roll. I'm okay with the jelly roll. That, you know. Um, given the community that we, you know, that we live in. You can squeeze my lemon. Yeah. Um, uh, that's all fine. I, I'm okay with that. And and especially in historic recordings, I don't think anyone's going to have an issue with it. Now, you know, again, use your common sense. If we're actually using words that describe body parts specifically and literally, I wouldn't do that, you know. Um, but it it's it's contextual, you know, it's just a matter of judgment. And one of the things I want to say is that, you know, we're very fierce defenders of free speech here. And I don't want to have you compromise your art. And I do consider what we do here to be art. You know, you're creating a, 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 a significant piece of work by doing being a DJ. And it's important that we be able to, um, you know, share the art. Uh, so no, I'm not a huge fan of censorship, um, but you also have to use common sense. And especially as the audience grows, you know, the, the standards in Chatham might be different than the standards in Provincetown, for example. And we have listeners in Peoria, too. Um, and it's okay to be out and weird and pushing boundaries and all of that. That's what we're here to do. We're here to, you know, do things that aren't happening in other places. And they have to do with expression. One, one good thing about um, Spotify, say, let you know, mm -hmm. it's not perfect. Not perfect by any stretch, but by and large, they let you know that there is an expletive in 
Right. So Sam is pointing out that the Spotify and other outlets sometimes label the tracks with explicit language. You can't rely on that perfectly, but it is helpful. Um, all of this is to the broader point of be familiar with your content before you get on the air. And this goes back to how I started the conversation with tech in general is know what you're trying to do and then find the tools that help you get there. But whether it's whether it's a bit of live copy that you got to read for underwriters or whether it's the content of your music or what the guest is going to say when you put a caller on the air. Let's go back to that for one hot minute. And um, I would not put, you know, I would not put, you know, whatever rando uh, listener on the air with I just wouldn't do it. That, that is asking for trouble. You do not know how many beers that person has had. Um, <laughs> um, question to clarify. Uh, FCC, they oversee broadcast. Do they oversee streaming? No. Uh, that's a good question. And this has come up uh, recently in a couple of different contexts. So uh, streaming is governed largely by Congress. Uh, and uh, in particular, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act controls a lot of what we can do for streaming. Um, but no, the FCC only governs what happens over the transmitter, the FM. 91.3. 92.1, that's correct. Um, and uh, that has to do not only with the obscenity, but also our non-commercial broadcast license. So all of the stuff about underwriting language has to do with the FM FCC license. Now, we're also governed by the IRS because we're a nonprofit. And so there are certain things that we can and cannot do with revenue uh, related stuff because we are a nonprofit. Um, uh, so, for example, uh, we have to be careful about our um, uh, political statements. So the, the station is not. It's supposed to be in the business of politics because of our 501c3 status. So um, the details of that are super blurry, but um, it also has to do, again, with uh, the, the, the fact that people have tax deductible donations and, and various things to do with the revenue. Um, so but those are the main things that govern our business is FTC over the F FM transmitter the IRS over our nonprofit status and the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which is a piece of legislation which was passed, I think, roughly around the year 2000, might even be earlier than that, might have been 95. Um, so what could possibly go wrong with Congress uh, <laughs> governing the internet with a piece of legislation that's 30 years old? <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? I wonder if that's Robert. Yes, Robert Johnson. Yeah, talking about politics, I get political sometimes on my shows, and usually I preface that by saying the views are my own, they're not the views of WOMR, or K Lower Cape Communications. Does that cover the station? Yeah, in a short answer, yes. Um, uh, from a legal perspective, I don't think we're at any jeopardy in that. Um, there are uh, questions of internal policy about how we want to represent ourselves in the community, um, but I don't think you're at any legal jeopardy for doing something like that, no. And you're not alone in that, by the way. There, we have several people that get ranty from time to time. Rhonda. Totally different subject. 
I do not know how to record myself coming. Ah, yes. In case of a COVID situation again, where people were, some people were able to do that, get the show you, you were able to get it on the So, yeah, thank you for that. Rhonda's asking about recording at home and how easy it is, roughly, or how to do it. Um, <laughs> So, uh, as with the uh, performance in the studio, uh, there are uh, lots of different ways of recording your show at home. Um, in the early days of the pandemic, we set the bar pretty low. Um, so, however people were able to do it, and there was, you know, Brenda was super helpful with people putting shows together. Uh, Robert Johnson also helped a lot of people put shows together. Um, and everybody did it differently. But ultimately, you can do it on a laptop. And I would recommend investing a little bit of money on a decent USB microphone. The one that I'm recommending to people right now is called the Blue Yeti. And that costs about $150, $175, something like that. It's not insignificant, but it's not life-changing, hopefully, for most people. Um, if you wanted to do it in the cheapest way possible, I think a 50 or $60 USB microphone would get you in the door. But um, as time marches on, and we're not in a crisis situation anymore, my hope is that the people who are recording at home, and I think this is true in general, uh, that the people who are recording at home have had enough time to invest in the resources to get a product that is within, you know, 95% of broadcast quality, just in terms of the tech specs of it, what it sounds like, right? Because I don't, I'm not super psyched at this point to put a show on the air where the person sounds like this and, and, you know, like that's just not okay. We can do better than that. So if you're just talking into your laptop microphone, it's not going to be good enough. It's not. Um, we got away with that for a while because we needed to. Um, but if you have a streaming service and you have a decent microphone, and then the last piece of that puzzle is the recorder, that's uh, a open source free piece of software called Audacity. And I've told most people about it. It's what I use to do all of my work at the radio station. Um, I, there are other um, audio editors out there. Mac users may be familiar with GarageBand. Uh, Adobe makes an audio editor. There are others as well. Um, but Audacity is a nice one because it's full function and it's free. Um, GarageBand is also free if you're in Apple world. I, I'm not a super huge fan of GarageBand, but it'll do the same things essentially. Uh, and again, it's about how you use the tools and you can make the thing do the thing. That's great. Um, but so if you have a streamer, you have a microphone, you have Audacity, you have the tools then it's just a trick of figuring out how to use them. And uh, I think we've learned enough over the last three, four years that uh, anybody ought to be able to do it, but it's not, you're not gonna get it right on the first try, <laughs> let's say. So, and then the, the, uh, the, so the easiest way of doing it is that you have those tools and then you do it in real time, just like you would do it in the studio. So you have your set list ready to go. You have your announcements. 
I have uh, Google links for all of the underwriting scripts and things like that. And so you, and including show promos, recorded content, you have all of the stuff that you need to do the show just like you would if you were in Provincetown and you sit down at your computer and you do it um, in real time, start to finish three hours. I recommend breaking it up into one hour segments just because it really sucks to be two and a half hours into a show and the computer crashes and you just lost all your work. That's not a happy day. Um, so that's why I segment it into hours. Then you can send off 60 minutes at a time and you've got a fresh file with each 60 minutes because you got to do a top of the hour anyway. And also breaking it up into 60 minutes gives a natural place to put in some of the show promos and recorded content that you might want to put in between hours. Um, and then you post them to the cloud, right? So you post them to Google or Dropbox or equivalent because those files are too big to work as an attachment to an email, but you use some file transfer service to get them to me in the office. So Robert does this all the time. Scott does this all the time. We have a number of remote contributors now um, that do this on a regular basis and it's virtually indistinguishable from being in the studio, which is great. I'm happy to do that. Um, and, uh, I think at this point we, again, we've worked it out with Robert's help. I have to say on how to do everything on one machine. I do it with separate machines, um, so that I have my jukebox and my recorder, and there are some black boxes in between that help get it from one to the other. Um, and that's how I was originally coaching everybody to do it at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, but those extra tools are not essential to the process. Um, Gotta go. Thank you. Yeah, so thank you, Phil. Um, any uh, any changes or updates on doing things remote, live remotes? Live remotes is a good question. So um, live remotes. Uh, again, we learned about a bit about that during the pandemic. I did some live remotes from my home office while I was full remote. I worked from home full time for about 15 months or so. Um, and so we have a black box that allows us to dial home and get the signal there. Uh, and Lady Di also did a number of live remotes during the plant pandemic from her kitchen table. The Lady Di experience was not as smooth. Um, uh, I found it very entertaining. I'm glad you did. It was super frustrating from a management perspective. I mean, so as I said to somebody yesterday, in this business, when you consider that it's 24 seven, I, I wanna have like 99.9% .9 uptime. I think our track record on the Lady Die show was closer to 70% or something. It was losing listeners because we would have sometimes 10, 15 minutes of dead air while we were trying to figure the thing out. And also her show was five o'clock on Friday. So that means we got to have an engineering crew on call five o'clock on Friday. That meant me and John and another, even a real engineer. What I do, I'm a manager, not an engineer. As I tell people, if you got to open the hood, I'm calling the mechanic. Um, yeah, the, uh, the switch over at 7 p.m. Correct. <laughs> yes. So um, it's difficult. That's the only point I'm trying to make there. What it requires is a, a wired Internet connection. So you have to have an Ethernet cable, mm -hmm. Wi-Fi, at least in my experience, 
from my home office wasn't good enough. Um, I don't know how some of these other outlets are doing it, whether they're doing it on 5G or whatever they're doing, but Wi-Fi was not working for me. So you got to have a wire internet. If you're going to the restaurant or whatever, that means you have to have access to their router. Joe, the restaurant guy, is not super stoked to have us tap into his modem. Um, so you have to be on friendly turf. And then there are networking issues about firewalls and port forwarding. And so now I got to get into the back end of their router. Well, that's really not happening. Um, so it's a challenge. Um, furthermore, we have to think about why we're doing it. What is the content? What is the value? In the, so we could do it. None of these things are impossible, but you'd have to have an engineer on site to be doing the wine because you don't want the host to have to think about all those things. You want the host to be able to work on content while I'm running wires around and trying to figure out port forwarding. Um, and then you have to have somebody back at the mothership or remote to do the switching and to catch the ball when we throw it back. So you're talking about three to four people, at, at least, you know, most of whom are um, fairly techie, <laughs> let's just say. Um, so th there's a significant amount of resources, intellectual resources. And then again, what is the point? We're live from Phoenicia, you know, whatever, live from Payomet. Well, that's maybe more interesting, you know, live from the show, doing a concert. Okay. But if I'm just doing my radio show, yeah. what am, why am I at the restaurant for? Um, from a festival, we've done this before too. Um, okay, so we're live at Oyster Fest. Hey, what do you think about oysters? Well, <laughs> who's, who's freaking out? Um, why am I getting mute? You can mute everybody. Yes. I don't know why. Mute all. Goodbye. Yes. Sorry, I had to mute the, mute the Zoomers because I was getting feedback. I'm not sure what that was all about all of a sudden, but here we are now. Um, so yes, I would love to do more community engagement. And this was so back up again. I wanted to say this before we lose more people. Thank you all for doing the, the evaluation process. I think most of you in this room have done so at this point. It may seem like it's sort of going through the motions or whatever, but it's super important. Um, so that a number of people said that they wanted to have more tech training. So I'm doing this. Uh, another uh, point that a lot of people made was about community engagement and, and getting events more sort of times that we can be in the same room together. So this in part addresses that question too, because we get to be in the same room together. I haven't been in the same room with some of you in many, many months. Um, but we'd also like to have more pub nights and whatever, meet and greets, maybe even more fancy things like book an out-of-town musician on a big stage and sell tickets. Could. Um, we've done some things like that before. We need to manage our resources. Um, again, it's a small staff who is pretty much pedaling as fast as we can. Um, we are in the process of hiring somebody. I don't know if you all knew that, but we are. Uh, it's been posted on the website. Uh, there, I'm not a part of that process directly, 
um, but we're bringing somebody on whose primary role is going to be to help us with community engagement. So uh, marketing and outreach and social media, as well as public events and all of that. So hopefully, um, certainly it's going to be a slow build on that, but hopefully by the end of the year, we can be doing a lot more in that regard. Um, so again, thank you for taking the time to fill out those comments. Um, it, the program committee it has a process of of reading them all and talking about them within the group. So that's why it sometimes takes three, four months for us to get back to you because I got to receive them and then hand them out to committee members and the committee meets once a month. And so they get back together again. Now it's two months later. So it, I, I'm trying to figure out ways to make the process more efficient, but it's still super important. Um, and new in this go round is asking all of the programmers to do it. It used to be that it was only for people that had regular shows on the broadcast schedule, but um, we have a number of significant contributors who don't have regular shows, and I want to know what you think too. So um, it's absolutely central to our mission that the members of the community are driving the bus on this thing. I am here to try and figure out what you all want to do and help you do it. And I take that very seriously um, so that whether it's with the tech or your content to your shows, you know, I don't make editorial suggestions. I try and refrain from making stylistic judgments about the records you play, even though I don't like some of them. Um, that's not my job. You know, that's not what I'm here for is to tell you that I don't like your music. I'm here to try and help you execute on what you want to do. And so both within the context of your show, but more generally with the management of the station. And so we need to keep the flow of communication open to do that. So thank you. And thanks for coming to the meeting, by the way. <laughs> Blew up a Saturday. I mean, I wasn't going to be doing yard work anyway, but. Uh, I don't know if this is for you, Matt, or if John's still on board. Uh, I got a situation with someone who may be wanting to get rid of the car up in the Merrimack Valley. Would that still be possible? 100%. Okay. Yep. Uh, the phone number and website are right on the front page of the I website. did it yesterday. You gave us a car? I got, um, yeah, it's my son's car. I'm getting it out of my driveway. So the cars program has been great. Uh, among the things that are going great at the station, the cars program is one of them. Uh, we're, somebody gave us like a $10,000 Prius uh, earlier this month. I mean, it's great. I think it's uh, junkier, but That's okay. I got a $10 car. Yeah, a hundred bucks is great too. Yeah. I have just a, a, a content observation. Last night I had live music on, and I've this is the second time. The microphones are excellent. They're those like condenser type mics. I mean, the, you, with the two, with my two and three, I had you know, two musicians, and people were calling saying that the quality is just great. Yeah, the mics. So thanks for whatever you did to make yeah. that happen. Yeah. You know, Really good. So that was our engineer. Uh, our broadcast engineer is a fellow called Chris Kelly, and he's high quality individual. Yeah. Um, he, his day job is one of the lead engineers at GBH. So he's goes back and forth between the radio and the TV side of things. But um, we get uh, top quality consulting from him as well as, uh, you know, contract work. Um, he's, he installed all the new equipment at the yeah. studios, made that recommendation. We switched. We had a different kind of broadcast mic in the old studio, which was also industry standard expensive mic. But I agree. I think these mics are a lot better. Um, some of the engineering loose ends, and, and this was a comment that 
was brought up in people's evaluations and it's something that um, is of concern to the staff as well, that there are some engineering loose ends that we haven't been able to get to. So you may have noticed there are certain blank screens in the studio, for example, that are um, among other things. Um, Chris works in Boston, he's got a job. And so we get him when we can get him. Um, it means sometimes we go several weeks or even months and things that are not super high priority may not get done for years, as it turns out. Um, it's frustrating, but it's a fact of life that broadcast engineer as a job description is super rare. There's literally only a few of them in all of New England. Um, so, you know, Clear Channel has one, iHeart has one, and GBH has one. Everybody else is struggling. Um, and so sometimes when Chris can't get to a job, John has suggested, hey, I can call a contractor, you know, somebody's gonna climb the pole and adjust the antenna, whatever, and you don't have time to come down and do this. Can I just go to the, the phone book and find somebody? And there are issues with that. Um, you know, engineers get very proprietary about their systems. And so they're not super stoked to have somebody else poking at their baby. Um, and the other thing is if we hired a contractor, that person would also be driving from New Hampshire to come do the job. And so, um, you know, before we had Chris Kelly, our previous broadcast engineer commuted from central Connecticut to come do the job. And he was not as good as the one we got. Um, so we're in a better situation now among other things, because of the relationship with GBH, he's running dozens of transmitters. Um, we get stuff that, um, uh, hand-me-downs, I'll call them, from GBH on a regular basis, stuff that would be expensive and significant to us, that is surplus equipment for them, ends up in our closet. It's good for us. Um, so the relationship with Chris Kelly and GBH is great, but the human resources are thin on the ground. And so we're working on ways to spend our money because we've been doing so well financially that we can maybe make up for some of those shortcomings in human resources by getting um, backup systems. So that if plan A breaks, going back to being a DJ in the studio, if the transmitter in Provincetown goes down, we have a second one that we can just flip until we can get the repairman to show up and deal with it. Um, it's all a work in progress and it's all super complicated and expensive. Um, but if you all keep on doing what you're doing, we have proven that the people are willing to pay for it. So that's great. Um, you know, stay positive, create a good product and, and the rest of it will sort itself out. Um, are there any broad topics that we haven't addressed yet that we should, because we should go. <laughs> We I don't should want to do yard work. <laughs> We've been here. Well, we got a little bit of a late start, so I'm willing to sort of let it slide. But two hours is really longer than any meeting should be. <laughs> I, I, again, as we all learn things as we go, I'm learning about how to be a manager of an organization because I was, you know, I was a waiter before I did this. So um, one of the things about running a meeting is have an agenda, hit the points, go home. Um, 60 minutes is the right amount of time for any given committee meeting and really 45 is better. 90 minutes is hard stop on a meeting. If you go longer than 90 minutes, we're all thinking about lunch. So <laughs> there's no point in having that meeting anymore. And now we've been here for two hours. So thank you for your attention. Thank you, Maddie. Thank you. Thank you.